Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. Um, first, um, I want to um, ask everyone to just say a special prayer for Sheikh. It's been such a difficult semester. Um, if you guys knew what went on behind the scenes and how hard it's been and how much he has on his plate and um, the fact that he comes and, and delivers this incredible halakha is actually quite miraculous and, and such a gift for all of us. Um, and, you know, it's incredible how quickly time passes. We're already almost to the end of the semester, but it has been a really, really tough one. And so I'm so grateful every time we can be here and, and share this moment and, and accept this incredible gift from Sheikh. So um, thank you, Sheikh. <laughs> um, and of course, I have to call out yesterday's incredible khutbah as always. But honestly, I think yesterday was one of the best khutbahs I've ever heard. Um, it's called what happens when you silence the birds? Um, and he talks about the act of witnessing and how witnessing is as natural and intuitive um, to, you know, to us as human beings, as God's creation, as birds who sing as a means of testifying to the truth or how animals testify or dogs testify by barking or babies testify by crying when they're hungry. Um, how everything is really, um, a, you know, an expression of um, testifying to the truth as we perceive it. Um, and what happens when um, human beings, as the only people can, who can actually resist that intuitive, um, you know, nature that has been put in us, um, have a tendency to want to silence adults, uh, silence people, human beings. And um, it's such a beautiful khutbah um, about, you know, that message, but also he takes us back into history back into our own tradition. And I have to say, like I told some of the people here that um, it, the, I, I actually had to leave um, during the khutbah to go pick up Mido. And as I was listening on the live stream, I actually started crying because, and, and you know, this is like what we were hearing in this khutbah as Sheikh was sharing about things that happened in our history that I think modern Muslims have no idea about how Muslims reacted to things like even libraries, like when Muslims encountered the libraries in Persia, um, you know, how um, they honored that testimony, that, that knowledge that was in libraries as part of this witnessing for God. And how if that were something that we as modern Muslims were, you know, in the situation of today, um, the way we would handle that would be so different, which is, you know, something that we live every day. We have an incredible library and we see, you know, people are just not really interested in knowledge. People are not really interested in investing in this testimony, this collective testimony for God. Um, so anyway, this, this was such a beautiful, rich, um, important khutbah. So I really encourage everyone either to go back and watch it or wait till the next weekly email where we will summarize it. And it was truly, truly beautiful. It helps, I mean, it, it makes us feel, or made me feel like, wow, we've really lost so much. And it, it honestly is, is an incentive, I guess, to try and um, do what we can to kind of bring that beauty of that tradition back. So I really hope that, um, that you guys will find it as amazing as I did. Um, so for today, um, I wanted to share actually something kind of of a personal nature, um, which is very interesting. This is a, a journal that um, Sharif just came across. Like students here, you know, as, as you know, people have been um, working on the library for now, it's almost the two years that we've been here. And so we kind of, the students finished working through the books and now they're working through papers and archives. And so every so often they'll find something and Sharif brought this to me. And this is actually a journal that I kept that is dated back from July, 2006. So it was from 16 years ago. Um, I, um, 
you know, had been a Muslim, I guess, for, I converted in 1994, so I'd been a Muslim for 12 years and been uh, married to Sheikh for about 11. And I wanted to share it because um, this is like, I mean, I've told my story a little bit, but, you know, part of, um, part of my interest in finding Islam, um, as people may have known, is that, you know, when you are growing up and, and experience a lot of darkness or a lot of ugliness, you're searching for something more beautiful. And so that was definitely a trigger for me to search for something more and better. And um, I arrived at Islam, but you know, it's one thing to convert to um, Islam. It's another thing to then go beyond that and um, become you know, engaged in this, what we're learning here, which is beautiful Islam. Um, and you know, we know certainly that there's so many converts that come to the faith and leave because what they find is not anything that is sustainable or enriching. And so I was very blessed. Um, I've always said, you know, the greatest gift that God ever gave me was to allow me to become Muslim. That was number one. And then uh, um, number two was to allow me to be married to Sheikh. And partly because, I mean, I was able to learn so much um, and unlearn so much, right? Because when you convert, that doesn't, you don't all of a sudden become, you know, this great you know, religious, wonderful person, you bring all that baggage with you. And I had the blessing of having a husband who was really invested in my healing and invested in my learning and invested in who I would become as a Muslim. And so we had many, many conversations early on, um, which, you know, actually are really based on what we've been learning here. It's like foundational from the Quran, from the ethics, from the values, from the beauty of this tradition. Um, this, so I, I would be probably the first one to testify to the power of this learning here because this is everything that I was given and taught from the time you know we met and I was sort of you know re-raised and healed um, and, and it's a work in progress um, is based on you know this Quranic ethic, this beauty, and um, so this was an interesting journal find because you know we talked a lot about many many things that obviously I, I needed to work on as you know on my journey of healing and growth. And I would every so often prepare these kinds of books for myself. And they were kind of like reminders to myself of things that I had to work on. So these were issues that, you know, I had problems with or that I needed to develop. And so this was like, you know, for example, you know, a very short, this is the first page, humble yourself. And it's literally just a journal with very short reminders to myself of what I had to work on and, and you know, develop. So imagine coming across this now 16 years later and kind of, you know, flipping through it and going, oh my God, I can't, you know, I, I remember doing it, but it was so long ago. But I thought that some of these things were really valuable and they're valuable reminders for me now. And I thought that I would share them too, because um, they might be valuable for anyone else who is going through a similar journey where, you know, part of your growth and development is healing yourself and reminding yourself of the things that Qur the Quran and Islam can bring to your life and give you to empower yourself to be a better person, a better Muslim, you know, a better um, member of your family, a better friend, a better sister, a better daughter, all those kinds of things. So I thought I would just share some of these things and, and I hope that, um, I hope you don't mind, um, but for whatever it's worth, if, if anyone finds these things values, valuable. So of course, and, and these are obviously things that I had problems with. So humble myself, humble yourself. So first one, help others be happy make their lives easier, serve others, 
do not perpetrate the darkness, depression, anxiety, and ugliness of the past. Do not make excuses. Do it yourself. Get it done, and don't ask others to serve you. Be solid, moral, decent. Be a real person. Choose to be liberated. There are no inevitabilities. Refuse the chains, the shackles, and assumptions of your past. Be free. Have your life as it should be. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask God for help. Respect God. Do not conveniently forget what matters most. Never feel comfortable that you have it beat. It is a daily, minute-to-minute -minute struggle. Take yourself seriously. Be light, not chained, not dark, not ugly, not anxious. Be free. Feel free to be passionate about God. Make your home a wonderful place to be. Love your home, love your babies, bless your home. Love your God. Love your prophet. Read Quran every day, even just one page. Think in terms of acts of kindness. What have you done today? Take care of others instead of wanting them to take care of you. Excel in what really matters. It is your choice to be, on the one side, rude, jealous, annoyed, depressed, anxious, angry, or self-pitying, or happy, thankful, cheerful, pleasant, agreeable, forgiving. What have you accomplished? What have you left behind? How have you served Islam and become a better Muslim? You are what you construct yourself to be. You are not a victim. Don't think, act, speak, be, or feel that you are one. So that, that was it. Those are, you know, 16 years ago. Um, it's a long journey. It's always uh, continuing um, moments, moments, struggle, work in progress. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for everything that, you know, that Islam has taught me, that Sheikh has taught me through this beautiful understanding of our faith. Um, even from like last, you know, halakha when you're talking about the idea of nafur and action and not accepting, you know, any inevitabilities. These things have been really life transformative for me. Um, and I hope that um, if that is of value, you know, to anyone, um, that that will have been worth reading it through. But so much of what we try to do here is um, not just, you know, obviously learn what our book says, but try to understand how we can internalize that and make ourselves better. And so um, I'm eternally grateful to God and eternally grateful to Sheikh for this entire experience and this entire opportunity to grow 
and um, I feel like you know at the foundation of it is everything that we've been learning here. So I'm I'm so grateful, and I'm I hope that others have found that beauty in this journey as well. So thank you so much, um, and uh, looking forward to another amazing continuation of our journey with Sora Altova Zay Five. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سبحان الله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على الحبيب المصطفى محمد خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين المصر رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وطهار الميامين وعلى أصحاب المشترين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري واسر لي أمري وحل الوقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين so I think we stopped at uh, f uh, 50. Um, just to connect where, with where we left off, it's always, uh, I mean, if... <laughs> If it would have been possible to, to have one long, continuous, uninterrupted halaqah uh, that lasts as many hours as it needs to last to finish the surah, then you, you wouldn't have to reconnect where you left off. But as we, um, as I hope we'll recall, surah to tawbah turns to the events surrounding the challenge of Ghazwat Tabuk um, and uses the this opportunity of a a, um, a, a, a this sort of critical moment where it is very tempting for people to say well we've uh, we've defeated Quraysh um, Mecca folded um, serious challenges in Arabia have ended and to Not um, uh, not be uh, to to be uh, um, uh, uh, choosing the right word is difficult is to uh, to lose the sense of vigilance about what is needed to actually serve a cause and to make sure that this cause survives and that it is served properly and so as and as we said it, it is um, it, 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 it is extremely telling that the prophet invested in the type of activity where he would get news of potential threats 
what we in our modern age would call national security threats um, to the state. And among those, the, the most prominent threat that reaches them is that the Byzantines, concerned about the rise of an Arab or a, an Arab kingdom in Arabia, and what this will mean, especially to the Lassasina, the the the, the uh, Arab tribes that had, for centuries, been paying a poll tax or a jizya to the Byzantines and have existed subservient in. Um, the, of course, the Byzantines knew very well that areas like Palestine, Sham. Uh, uh, Egypt, um, what's today Jordan, or at least major parts of Jordan, um, were linguistically, culturally very different than Byzantia itself. And that even the Christianity that existed in these areas um, often existed in great deal of friction with Byzantine Christianity. So, for instance, the Coptic Church was persecuted by the Byzantine Empire and the Coptic uh, pre, uh, Pope had been in hiding at the time that Ghazwat Tabuk, uh, the events of Ghazwat Tabuk uh, takes place. He had been, he had actually uh, was hiding somewhere in Palestine, hiding from the Byzantines and from, because they, the, if found, the Byzantines were going to imprison him, and and it's a whole complicated story. But anyway, so to rise to this challenge, where the Prophet ﷺ takes the decision to send an army to make a point, and the army is in, there's a very good chance that it would end up having a military confrontation with the an invading Byzantine army. Now, of course, indications are is that they didn't have um, information as to what the size of the potential army that Byzantia would send to uh, Arabia. Um, there is some very interesting information about uh, their attempt to cope with the war tactics of Byzantia and the choice of weapons that Byzantian armies employed because they, they were very well aware that the style of warfare employed in Arabia is very different than the style of warfare in, employed by major superpowers like Byzantium. It's a just completely different ballgame. in part because of the distance that would need to be traveled. So the, the, the extent of the sacrifice that people would have to make, so the, the distance that would be, have to be traveled, in part because people were quite anxious uh, about meeting, um, having a military confrontation with Byzantium, uh, in part because many of those that were being now asked to join 
this campaign uh, and the potential showdown with Byzantium were not were recent converts to Islam and were tribes that had converted to Islam, some of them even just a few months. Um, it hasn't even been years, but months. But even among the longer converts to Islam, as we will we'll see, there is a realization that, you know, th this could be, the, I, Arabia for centuries had been terrified of confronting Byzantia. And Arabia for, again, for a very long time, all they wanted from Byzantia is to let them be, to not impose an order upon them as the Byzantines have done, for instance, with the Ghazasana, uh, the tribes, the Arab tribes of the Ghazasana in Sham and in Palestine and, and these regions. And this then results in a variety of dynamics. And as we saw, at least, we started the journey of talking about uh, the excuses where various groups of people, whether individuals or much larger units like clans or tribes and so on, would make up excuses. Some, some of the excuses were we are, you know, we're very sorry, but we have such and such circumstance, and we can, so we can't join in in this campaign. Um, others were like, we'll we'll support you financially, but we can't join the campaign physically. But we, you have our financial support, and we've talked about. Um, the sort of um, uh, arrogant excuse of saying, well, you know, we don't want to disobey you, so don't order us to join this campaign because if you do, we'll disobey you, and then that would be not good. Uh, and that's extremely arrogant to tell the Prophet, and we saw, you know, what went down in history as a rather famous sort of, in a, in a way, comical excuse, Jad bin Qais, who tells the Prophet that, you know, I have a weakness towards blonde women, and so, you know, I can't join the campaign because I can't, you know, I can't guarantee you how I'm going to react if I... Um, uh, if I come upon white, uh, white blonde women. And as we saw that while most tafsir, or nearly all of them, say that the Quran chides the Prophet for either not responding or, agree, you know, basically saying, okay, fine, you know, if, if you don't want to come, then, so in other words, excusing people. 
as we saw last halakha, that doesn't make sense. Uh, from the text of the Quran itself, it simply does not make sense. In part because, again, as we saw earlier, that the Quran itself delegates the power to either excuse or not excuse to the Prophet and tells him that it is it is in your charge to exercise that discretion. But as we also saw in the text of the of Surah At-Tawbah, that this idea that God is chiding the Prophet for excusing them is contradicted by the text of Surah At-Tawbah. Okay, all of this is just review. And the nature of the, the style of the Prophet was, and this is a critical point, that even if the Prophet excuses you, that does not mean that Allah forgives you. And you cannot shirk off responsibility by saying, well, you know, the, the Prophet forgave me. If you should have known better, the responsibility is upon you and upon your shoulders. And as we said that this is entirely consistent with the message in Surah At-Tawbah that you do not take your religious leaders, including your prophets, as your gods. They, they don't decide what's haram or halal. Um, your relationship with God is personal and direct. And so Surah At-Tawbah comes and in a, in a, you can imagine the context, the historical context. You have groups of people that failed to join the campaign of Tabuk. And they are in society. And they are, you know, like pe when people do something that they know they shouldn't have done, but they try to pretend that it's okay. So it's an, it's an uncomfortable tension, but it is an unspoken tension. The fact that they went to the Prophet and made excuses and that the Prophet either didn't respond at all or simply said okay, they are very well aware of those who did join Ghazwat Tabuk and did make the sacrifice. And the groups of people that had, that proved their sincerity and loyalty and joined the campaign, it coexists with the groups of people that failed to join the campaign. Imagine upon the return of those who joined the campaign of Tabuk, there is a great deal of discomfort 
between those who sacrificed and those who didn't sacrifice. But what is keeping this discomfort mute is the fact that, well, you know, if, if you're saying, you know, I told the prophet and the prophet didn't object, or I told the prophet and the prophet said, okay, well, then, who, uh, then who's going to protest? And so the Quran comes and it is a, a, the, the, the intensity of the Quranic intervention cannot be understated in that it comes and it makes all those who offer their excuses extremely uncomfortable. And it puts sort of like puts them before a mirror, and tells them the fact that the that you went and told the prophet doesn't get you off the hook. Okay, and as we saw towards the end of the halakha, that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala comes and says. And this is the 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 um, the layers of Surah At-Tawbah. That those who made excuses are of different types of different different degrees. There are those who, if they were serious about their commitments, they would have arranged their affairs so that if they were if they wanted to, in fact, be committed and sincere, they would have done what is necessary so that, in fact, they can join or could, they could have joined uh, this campaign. That the... The, and so it is, and this is a very subtle subconscious point that, in fact, you could subconsciously, because you don't want to sacrifice, because you don't want, to, you could subconsciously arrange your life in a way in which a sacrifice would indeed be impossible. Or, at, you, you, you you know you come at the last moment and say, oh well you know if if I go on this campaign my children will starve my family there's no you know there my home will no one is can take care of, but it is because you fail to take the preliminary steps, the prior arrangements so that in fact you would be in a position to rise to the challenge when the challenge is presented. And as I said, that these are moral seeds. The, the, there's, Allah doesn't tell us these examples because for us to marvel about what happened in the past, Allah tells us about these examples so that we reflect upon our moment. And what it means when Allah says that if you wanted to truly serve the cause, 
you would have taken the necessary steps so that you would be in a position to serve the cause. And all the profound implications of that. And we've talked last halakha about, the, you know. Now, but there are also among those that um, it's not that they are weak and they succumb to their, just to their um, weaknesses by putting off having to take whatever steps are necessary so that they can serve the cause. But in fact, there, there are groups of people that are, you know, the, the uh, consummate naysayers and second guessers who Allah, although Allah tells them, I'm going to hold you responsible, but at the same time tells Muslims that so that Muslims understand the wisdom of the Prophet not forcing these people to come join the campaign, in that if they would have indeed joined, they would have caused nothing but dissension. And by constantly questioning um, the sacrifice itself, these are like you know the the types who give a sadaqah but do not give it happily or enthusiastically they give it begrudgingly regardless of what the prophet has what license has the, you think the prophet gave you the fact that your you haven't disciplined yourself, your jihad against yourself has not elevated you to the status of feeling honor in the sacrifice that you present. In other words, you, you are honored by the sacrifice rather than feel debased by the sacrifice. And this, as we saw, this is towards a very... Uh, I think it was verse 47 or 48, something like that. Okay. I think what, what the last point I made was um, And again, Allah sort of removing the lid or uncovering the psychology of, of the non-committals by a group of people who always are waiting to gloat upon the failures. So these are the people who would wait around, and then if things don't go well, would gloat that, well, we knew all along that this was not going to end well. And th that is why 
we didn't want to join. You see how wise we were. You see how... That is, again, a, a weakness within the soul. Your cause is not God's cause. Your cause is your ego. Your cause is to ultimately always be in a position where you can, well, to be in a state where you can position yourself as um, demonstrate your wisdom, demonstrate your insights, demonstrate your perceptiveness uh, before people. Your true loyalty is to that inflated sense of ego and not to the sacrifices. Your honor is not found in the sacrifice. Your honor is found in whatever assessment you can you convince yourself um, or it's not in the sacrifice, but your honor is found in in the elevation of your ego as the, as the center of everything so that so ultimately you are as and this is verse by the way just in case you 50 that in that if a, a harm befalls you if so, if things go wrong, they would say, "Well, we knew it all along," and they turn away, happy with themselves. But again, the, as we said, Surah At-Tawbah is, in the tradition, is described as the kashifa or the exposer because of the 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 way it sort of lifts the lid, lifts the cover from the various types of hypocrisies that exist within society at the time. Okay. And then 51, which we didn't, I guess, uh, get to. قُلْ لَنْ يُصِيبَنَا إِلَّا مَا كَتَبَ اللَّهُ لَنَا وَهُوَ مَوْلَانَا وَعَلَى اللَّهَ فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ قُلْ هَلْ تَرَبَّصُونَ بِنَا إِلَّا إِحْدَى الْحُسْنَيَيْنَ ونحن نترهبس بكم أن يصيبكم أن يصيبكم الله بعذاب من عنده أو بأيدينا فتربصوا إن معكم متربصون. Now the tone of Surah Tawbah becomes clearly harsher. Let's let's go through the the meaning the, the translation of these verses before we comment on them because it's a, it raises a number of subtle points. Okay. So first, there is an axiomatic point that must be understood, and it's a matter of faith and conviction. Say that nothing 
can befall us sever, save what God has decreed. God is our Lord supreme, and in God the believers place their trust. So the idea that your inflated ego where the center of your existence is to be in a position to say, well, I knew the, the folly of, their, of this past all along, or something is good only if I support it, or, or something is bad necessarily if I don't support it. My loyalty is, to, there's, a, there's a deeper problem with your faith. And that ultimately you are dealing with God's um, with God's determinations as to fate. What actually transpires, whether things work or don't work, your job is to put your best effort in. The results are God's and God's alone. So, ultimately, you put, even with something like confronting the Byzantines, Allah is telling these people, if this campaign would have ended disastrously, as long as you've put in your best efforts, all you can say is that this was God's will and we accept that. So that's an axiomatic point. Okay. Then after that, say, are you perchance hopefully waiting for something bad to happen to us? But in truth, nothing can happen to us save one of the two best things. But as far as you are concerned, we are hopefully waiting for God to inflict chastisement upon you, either from God or by our hands. Wait, then hopefully, behold, we shall hopefully wait with you. Okay, let's pause here. So, there is, it's clear that there are, among the, 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 the people who didn't draw, the, I don't want to use the word hypocrites because hypocrites, uh, Muslims often in their in, in their in their understanding of the Quran, use hypocrites in a very broad way, and they use it to other, to create a distance between the psychology of the people that are in, that the Quran is talking about, and their own psychology, while in reality, yes, there were hypocrites. Yes, there were people that were not believers at all and pretended to be Muslim. But there were also many who were weak Muslims and many people that could be us. 
and we are them, and they are us. People who would make excuses, be, and as we will see, and, and, and interestingly, ultimately, the, as we will see that Allah doesn't punish on this earth except those who were truly, truly sincere Muslims. And it is remarkable that the Quran ends up letting all the worst offenders go without consequences on this earth. And we'll talk about that. But, so there are the weak Muslims and there are the hypocritical Muslims. And so when Allah says to a faction, we know that you in fact wish us ill, that what, what you're hoping would happen is that things would go disastrously. Here, the Quran is not talking about the weak Muslims. The Quran is talking about the groups of people that pretended to be Muslim. Some of them converted simply by taking the shahada and doing very little else. But as we will see, some of them went well beyond just taking the shahada in pretending to be Muslims. And again, underscoring the axiomatic point, you don't understand that a person truly anchored in belief, they don't see the world the way you see it. the two best results that the Quran talks about is either we would be martyred in God's cause or we will be victorious. But now, this is what all the tafasir, by the way, say, is that either we will be martyred or we will be victorious. But I ask you the following question. What if God's will is that you are neither martyred nor are you victorious? What then is, are the best two results that the Quran is talking about? Because it is possible, right? It is possible that you're not martyred and you don't win. The answer becomes possible only if you reconstruct the understanding of what a victory is. The victory is in the effort and in the process itself, not in the results. In other words, either I'm martyred or I know that I've done the absolute best that I can. I expended my jihad. And whatever Allah decrees itself, I accept 
I am at peace with whatever Allah wills, even if it is not in accords or according to my calculations. That in itself is the real victory. Because there is no way of unsettling your equilibrium and your tranquility with the world that you exist in. The notion of victory in the Quran is never as many people think it is, an imperial understanding of victory. It is never, you know, vanquish the other, destroy the other, and, you know, raise the flags as you find in the Old Testament, for instance. Remember that in the Quran, Allah tells us that even no matter what you do, people will never become all believers. And in fact, that most people will remain unbelievers until the, the very end. Allah in the Quran tells us about the inevitability of diversity and difference and that that will never change. And in fact, that is part of then the acceptance of the existence of difference is part the 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 comprehension, the celebrating of difference itself is the victory. So and accepting that Surrendering or, or, or surrendering to the notion that the results and trusting that the results that Allah presents after having ex exerted and expended your very best is the victory. Put differently, the defeat is when you don't heed Allah's words and you don't do your very best for a victory. That's the real defeat. The defeat is when you live, it's, I am not defeated by speaking up against injustice and then injustice destroying me. I'm not defeated. Even if injustice doesn't martyr me, let's say injustice takes me and throws me in prison for the rest of my life. That's not a defeat. When Salman al-Auda is in prison now, right? If you don't understand the Quran, you would think that Salman al-Auda has been defeated. But he hasn't. In fact, his... You know, I've followed him throughout his career, and he has been a consistent, vigilant advocate for Allah and for Islam. And for his troubles, he's now rotting in prison, or he's thrown in prison with him. Of course, he's not rotting, but I mean, he's suffering in prison. There's no question about it. Um, but I accepting 
that as long as you've done everything that you can do, that the rest is up to Allah. That's the victory. Okay, so the question that, okay, we know that you, in fact, don't wish us well, but you don't understand that what you, in your, in your calculations, the way you see the world is very different than the way we see the world. And then, okay, we, we'll, we'll have to stop for Maghrib in one second. But then, Allah tells them, and this is the first time that Allah in all the previous Quranic discourses with the hypocrites there is never an implied or explicit threat against them. And in Surah At-Tawbah is the first time in which God tells them, watch out because what could be God's will and that Allah would punish you not in the, just in the hereafter but on this earth that either would Allah would send a catastrophe to inflict inflict you directly or that, or that Allah would use us to punish you. In other words, your course of conduct will lead to an, a set of events in which your hypocrisy, your conniving, the 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 insincerity and duplicity that you followed and adopted vis-a-vis -vis this religion will either result in a calamity that will fall you befall you directly from God or God will use us to punish you now we know that this is in the ninth Hijri year and a year later, the Prophet ﷺ dies. And the hypocrites are never punished. The, the Prophet ﷺ never punishes any of the hypocrites. So the suffering is never inflicted upon them through the hands of the believers. It just doesn't happen at the time of the Prophet. So what is this a reference to? In my opinion, although you don't find this in any of the tafsir, in my opinion, this is Allah alerting these people 
to what will happen, what Allah knows will happen after the death of the Prophet. Because many of these people, okay, look, right after these ayat, Allah will start talking about the sadaqat. Many of these people, the first thing they did after the death of the Prophet is that they refused to pay the sadaqah. And Abu Bakr took the decision to go to war against him. I am convinced that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew, Allah knows, Allah knew that this is what's going to unfold. And Allah warns them that this is what's going to unfold. If they would have heeded this warning, perhaps they would have what is often referred to as the wars of Hurubiridda, the wars of apostasy. Yes, some of these groups apostated after, but most of them didn't apostate. Most of them kept, whether they're Islam, whether they're Muslim or not Muslim, vague. They didn't. They they wouldn't clearly say whether in fact they are Muslim or not Muslim. But what they certainly made sure of is what the Quran talks about is that they right after these verses the Quran talks about sadaqat what they most certainly did is that they refused to pay their share to the Muslim Ummah to the Islamic to the central government and basically said our money is ours to keep get lost we will take care of our own. We owe nothing to people outside of our clan, outside of our tribe, outside of our territory. Their materialism got the best of them. And indeed, this Allah-inspired Khalifa Abu Bakr to make the decision to go to war, to hold the state together, and to prevent the fracturing of the state, the state from breaking apart. Because once the state would have broken apart, it most certainly the case that the Byzantines and the Sassanids would have pounced on the remnants of the state, on the little splinters that remains and would have achieved complete and utter dominance over these people for centuries to come because they already saw what happens oh they're getting together this man came and he united them and turned them into a serious force so you can't turn back time now that they've been alerted to the danger the minute they see fracturing they're going to pounce on it and they're going to make sure that they assert hegemonic power over this region, a region that they for centuries thought no danger can possibly come from this region. Now they know better. So Abu Bakr, and subhanAllah, that in Surah At-Tawbah, if only people would have thought back and said, Surah At-Tawbah, in fact, warns them about what unfolds after the death of the Prophet, not during the life of the Prophet. Okay, let's pray more.
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اوكي قل انفقوا طوعا او كرها لا يتقبل منكم انكم كنتم قوما فاسقين وما منعهم ان تقبل منهم نفقتهم الا انهم كفروا بالله وبرسوله ولا يأتون الصلاة الا وهم كسالى ولا ينفقون الا وهم كارهون فلا تعذبك اموالهم ولا اولادهم انما يريد الله ليعذبهم بها في الحياة الدنيا وتزهق انفسهم وهم كافرون ويحلفون بالله انهم لمنكم وما هم منكم ولكنهم قوم يفرقون لو يجدون ملجأ او مغارة لو يجدون ملجأ او مغارات او مدخلا لولوا اليه وهم يجمحون So this is takes us to 57 Uh, first, let's do the translation. Um, okay. Okay, say to them, you may spend willingly or unwillingly, pretending that you do it for the sake of God, it shall never be accepted from you. For verily you are people bent on inequity. For only this prevents their spending from being accepted from them. They are bent on refusing to acknowledge God and God's Apostle, and never pray without reluctance, and never spend on righteous causes without resentment. Let then, let, let not then their worldly goods or the happiness which they may derive from their children excite thy admiration. God but wants to chastise them, by these means in this worldly life and to cause their souls to depart while they are still denying the truth. And they swear by God that they do not, and they swear by God that they do indeed belong to you and that while they do not belong to you but are only people ridden by fear, if they could but find a place of refuge in any cavern or crevice in the earth, they would turn towards it in a headlong haste. For me, these are among the most um, the, 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 among the, the parts of Surah Tawbah uh, and Surah Tawbah is full of these parts, but that gives gives you long pause and um, are truly frightful verses. Because so, let's take it from. So, Allah exposes the hypocrisy of these people. But instead of taking it in the order presented, we'll, 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 we'll restructure it a, a little bit because it will help us understand it. So they are people of means. And 
as such in society. And this is why the, the, the law says, do not admire their wealth and their possessions. The amwalahum wa awladuhum are in often in, 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 um, a term of expression for wealth and power. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you have one child or three children or 10 children. The expression, the Quranic expression and the Arabic expression is your money and children, meaning your money and your, your power, your, your, uh, uh, your means in society. So they are people of means. Now, it's, it's significant because part of the arrogance of this faction is that they are people of means. And because they are, they fall in what a lot of wealthy people um, fall into, is that they start feeling a sense of autonomy and independence from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they start thinking that they are in a position to better judge the trajectory of society and the priorities of society than other people. And the fact that they are people of wealth and means puts them in a position also to have an impact upon society because people can look up to them, people can admire them, people can be affected by them. But in fact, what is the problem with this group of people? Well, they لا يأتون الصلاة إلا وهم كسالة ولا ينفقون إلا وهم كارهون. The problem with these people is not that they are in fact not kuffar in in the way that Quraysh was were kuffar. The problem with these people is that prayer is a chore for them. It's not a priority, and in fact. Coming to prayer is a chore. It's a burden that they, that they, I mean, you, you can even from in variety of reports, you know that they show up for a prayer, but they often show up late or they miss a lot of prayers. And they show up because they know that their status and their prestige in society will be greatly affected. Everyone around them goes to the mosque to pray with the Prophet And they know that if they stop doing that, then their, um, their position in society will be then affected. But Allah exposes them and saying, I know that this is, it's short for you. And this is not something that you do because you, in fact, are passionate about. But it's something that you barely expend to get out of the way for other means. And the other thing is that when it comes to spending, they do give. But whatever they give 
they give with great displeasure. It's like pulling teeth with them. It's not like those who, when Ghazwat Tabu came, came around and everyone understood the critical importance of going against a superpower. And so you have these stories of companions that go to come to the Prophet and say, you know, I've kept one third for my children, but two thirds I'm giving to the the uh, to the campaign. I'm don't these people. It's like pulling teeth when it comes to their spending. But here, remember that a group of them went to the Prophet and said. We will support financially, but we will not in, in person join this campaign. And in the tradition, we find that, in fact, among the wealthy, there was an attitude that warfare and going out on campaigns is something that poor people do. But they're too important. They are, they, ha, they have a lot of serious business. They have, you know, it's like the attitude of businessmen. It's like, we have a lot of business to worry about. You, you seriously want us to go out in the desert and ride a horse and, and go through the suffering when, you know, why don't you, we'll support whoever with our money, we'll support who can do that. But we ourselves will not do that. The critical step that takes place is Allah commands the Prophet ﷺ not to accept their money anymore. And again, you know, I told you that there are these a lot of moments in Quranic exegesis when you tell yourself this is not like any human or any any text you read in history. No historical text comes under the trying circumstance that the Prophet ﷺ confronted at the time when you are quite possibly on the verge of a major confrontation with a superpower and you go to your wealthiest and most arrogant elements in society and you tell them well because you were willing to pay people to do your job I'm not going to accept your money anymore that is just it doesn't happen I mean imagine Imagine our, our, even in our day and age, such a step being taken, where you, where you actually say, you know, if your money doesn't come from a sincere commitment, I don't want it. I can't, I'm not going to support the cause with money that comes from people who think that they're doing us a favor by spending this money. And Part of the thick description of the history is that when Surah 
the Tauba was revealed. There, of course, the, the, the old companions that were there from the time of the Hijra that were happy about Allah saying this. We have reports, you know, of, of Umar ibn Khattab, like celebrating the, but we have also numerous young companions who became anxious about, well, this, we, we need all the, and as, and as I will show you, the extent to which they were in need in a second. We need all the resources we can get. And so we're not kicking the, we're not telling people, these people, you're exiled from Medina. We're not confiscating their wealth. We're not imprisoning them. We are leaving them as they are in society, but we're saying your money is not welcome. The moral pause from that, and again, it's one of those seeds, moral ethical seeds that were not harvested by Muslims because the moral and ethical seed of this it's easy to jump to the conclusion, well, you know, you're hypocrites, so we'll throw you in prison and confiscate your money. But that's not what the Quran does. What the Quran does is to say, okay, keep your wealth. <coughs> this is a moral project. And in a moral project, we will not rely on immoral means which is extremely revolutionary. Okay, so Allah comes and says, listen, whether you want to spend voluntarily or unwillingly, قُلْ أَنْفِقُوا طَوْعًا أَوْ لَنْ يُتَقَبَّلَ مِنْكُمْ Whether you spend willingly or not, we don't want it. It's not accepted from you. And because Allah knows that despite your wealth and etc., you are truly now. Another point, which the Surah Taubah will come turn around and come back to, where um, where did it go? that they swear to you that they are loyal. And this is because, indeed, these wealthy, hesitant, you know the, the arrogance of the wealthy who, in our modern age, will, will write you a check, but only if you pursue them endlessly and vigilantly and and praise them and 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 you know beef them and butter them up and you know uh, and it's it's the exact same parallel but Allah comes and says we don't want your money that, that's not going to happen but indeed there is a group in Medina and Surah Tawbah, as we will see, talks about different groups, but the group in Medina who 
um, every time a question would be raised about their loyalty, they would rush to the Prophet, they, 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 their, they, their haughtiness and their arrogance made them not want, not want they, they considered it beneath them to bother with anyone less than the Prophet so they they're not going to, you know, if if one of the companions raises questions about their loyalty, there's for it's even Ali bin Abi Talib, for instance. Um, they would not bother responding to Ali, but they would rush to the Prophet and swear that they are loyal and they are misunderstood. And the people who did this, who were constantly jumping to the prophet to, you know, we want, we, we want to talk to you. What, okay, fine. What do you want to talk about? Oh, you know, we've heard rumors. People are saying that because, you know, we ask questions about giving money to this issue or, you know, we said, no, we can't afford to give money on this point, or because we delayed giving money, or we didn't, you know, people are raising questions, and we just want, you know, we want to know that you're okay with us. Are you okay with us? And the prophet would often either nod or smile or, you know, do some type of dua. So they knew who they were. And when the Quran was revealed, it was... They knew who they were. They knew that they were the group of wealthy people that would constantly assure the prophet, but they also knew that when it came to when it came to delivering results, they were constantly the laggers. They were their attitude towards prayer and their attitude towards material wealth. And so when it came time, and although it was not something that the Prophet ﷺ had done before, and the Prophet then told his companions, don't accept money from X, Y, Z. Imagine the the social impact upon these people. They can go, and they, in fact, they do. They, they went and tried to plead with the Prophet to accept from them the money that they had delayed giving. Before that, many of them had owed money for you know, they've been asked for sadaqat and made what we would call in our day and age a pledge. But they never paid the pledge. And the pledge had not been paid for a couple of years. And when the Quran came and said, don't take their money, they rushed to the Prophet and said, well, please, please, can we pay our pledge? And the Prophet said, I can't. Allah has told me I, I can't take your money anymore. Okay. Oh. Now, but this point, this is 
the, this area is 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 mind boggling. This fifty uh, fifty seven. They are anxious people. Why are they anxious? Because they have a lot to lose. What makes them so anxious? They're worried about their fate and the hereafter? No. They're worried about the fate of Islam? No. They're worried about the members of their community? No. What makes them anxious is they're worried about their wealth, their business. And they know that they, once Quraysh was defeated, they breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, alhamdulillah, okay, finally. Quraysh folded without even much of a serious battle. We were really worried about a confrontation with Quraysh, and Quraysh ended up, ended up being a cakewalk. Now it's time for us to settle down and pay attention to business and expand our trade and so on. The issue of Tabuk and a confrontation with Byzantia created an immense anxiety because what's next? Is our trade with Byzantium going to be affected? I mean, a lot of the trade we do is with the Sham and Palestine and Egypt. And who's in control of these areas? Well, it's Byzantium. So is that going to affect our business? Well, what if Byzantium punishes us for daring to defy them and orders all its allies not to do business with us anymore? And they were expressing their anxieties in their own circles. Now, what, one of the most fascinating things I found is description of these individuals, when you track down the individuals by name, is that some of them were said to be consistently showing up for prayer around the events of Fath Mecca, when, when Mecca was defeated. But when they became anxious about Tabuk and the confrontation with the Bizarre, they started missing a lot of prayers in the mosque. Which means what? I mean, you put you put the pieces of the puzzle together and you, you imagine what's going on. Well, when they became worried about the direction, their relationship with Allah and their relationship with prayer was what became affected. It, it makes perfect sense. That you know, when you when you think your business is going, you, you know, your material business is going to prosper, oh, you know, you love God. But when it looks like going, there are going to be sacrifices and insecurity. Well, you're not sure about God after all. So they're anxious people, and their anxiety. The description of the Quran that if they could find 
a place, a cave to escape or a portal to escape from. Meaning what? Meaning if there was a way they could leave you guys with your problems and take care of themselves, take care of number one, and sort of accept themselves from the problems of society and accept themselves from the challenges of the cause and only worry about themselves, they would do it. it and it's... You know, can you imagine if you know you are one of those people that the Quran is referring to? And it's Allah telling you, you know, I, I know that if, if there was a way, you would make, you could make it up an excuse and, you know, lift yourself from all these challenges and just create your own, you know, um, 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 create your own. Um, what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, your your own zone, your own reality, in which you don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to challenge yourself. You don't have to take care of others. You don't have to worry about a cause. Allah knows that you, in fact, that that's what you would do. But that's precisely why Allah doesn't want, he calls your hypocrisy. Now, in Surah Tawbah, one of the very scary things, and this is something that commentators noticed, but have, you know, debated in a variety of ways, is that Surah Tawbah is the most poignant place in the Quran where Allah describes forms of nifaq as kufr that there, it, uh, maybe it doesn't surprise us that Allah describes hypocrisy as fisk, as being sinful, inequitous. But to describe it as kufr, and when you pause and you think about it, there are a lot of hypocrisies that when all is stripped away, it is, in fact, because you really don't believe. And but yet significantly, although, as we saw, um, in 55, Allah is telling them, you know, you will enjoy your wealth and you will enjoy your status until you die and you will die as kuffar. As far as the law is concerned on this in this world, because they took the shahada, they are believers. As far as legal status is concerned, but your legal status, in the same way that the Prophet excusing you or not excusing you, doesn't let you off the hook. Simply because you've taken the shahada doesn't mean that as far as your accounts and the hereafter are concerned, 
that you are a believer. There's and that there's a world of difference between the legal status, and that's why they continue to live in Medina. They were never treated as because the people receiving the Quran understood that Allah is talking about their status in the hereafter, not in the here now. So they were never, you know, treated as kuffar in terms of their legal status. But Allah tells them that, in fact, you will die as kuffar because of these deep embedded hypocrisies. Okay. Waminhum. Okay, so first, let's take 58 and 59. So, Oh, um, uh, just sorry. One, uh, uh, some of the reports about the, this class of uh, uh, hypocrites, um, what the Quran des um, describes as such, is that when part of the reason that Allah tells them this is stated by a lot of sources that part of the reason that Allah tells them that their money is not going to be accepted anymore is that Allah knows that when they get, do give, they give not really because they care about their status with God, but they, they give for the sake of public appearances. That they, their, their giving is a a, a, a social function aimed at serving their social status. Okay. So, and then وَمِنْهُمْ and um, so Allah now is talking about some of the, the same category of hypocrites have a, a dynamic and the expression yan mizuka a lens here is They are, their main attitude towards you is largely dependent on what 
they get materially from you. If they find that in their relationship with you, it is financially beneficial. So, and 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 so and here, especially going back to the whole issue of what their their hope their um, hope or wish to get a share from whatever the spoils of war are or whatever whatever it would benefit them financially they are agreeable people if they're benefiting financially but if they're not benefiting financially suddenly they become bitter and sour and critical and so that if it comes where they they, they find they're, they're constantly become the sort of you know the, the these people who are in a constant state of dismay and and they're very critical and when you strip everything you find that they're very critical because it came down to money okay and uh, you know uh, obviously a lot of comments on this it says you know if this is one of the earmarks of hypocrisy. But again, don't read any of these ayat as describing an exotic phenomena. The reason that Allah is talking about these examples is because this is us. That you will find in every situation people who ultimately, whether they are content or not content, it boils down to whether they feel that, and whether they told themselves, you know, it's a matter of, you know, oh, I want to know that I'm, I'm paid my worth or I am properly appreciated by money, but it boils down to money. It's, it's not a cause. It's not a, a principle. It's not even a truly a relationship with Allah, but it boils down to material wealth. Okay, then this area, which becomes axiomatic in Islamic law, إِنَّمَا الصَّدَقَاتُ لِلْفُقَرَاءِ وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَالْعَامِلِينَ عَلَيْهَا وَالْمُؤَلَّفَةِ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَفِي الرِّقَابِ وَالْغَارِمِينَ وَفِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَابْنِ السَّبِيلِ So first let's read the translation and then unpack it. Sadaqah. So let's for now say sadaqah is whatever, let's say alms or zakah. So sadaqah is whatever money that is supposed to be for the sake of God, right? Are meant only for the poor and needy and those who are in charge thereof, meaning those who actually are in charge of distributing the sadaqah. So those hired to manage the money and distribute it so they can be paid from the, the money that is collected. And those whose hearts are to be won over, 
those who are paid because the Prophet in the same way that a poll tax was collected from some, but there were groups that were not Muslim that the Prophet gave money to in order to, uh, to win their friendship or to avoid their hostility. So, in, 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 and this is again in in the in the law of nations of the time, and this is what a lot of people fail to understand about the whole institution of jizya, is that it was very common for you to be paid money. But it was also very common for you to pay money, in order to avoid people's host- a group's hostility or a tribe's hostility or a nation's hostility. And it was not seen as a, there was, it was not considered demeaning for the Prophet or for Muslims to pay certain tribes or certain clans so that they are not enemies. So this is a proper venue for sadaqah. Okay. وَفِي الرِّقَاب And to free slaves وَالْغَارِمِينَ And to free people from debt. So رِقَاب are, are slaves. وَالْغَارِمِينَ are people in debt. وَفِي سَبِيلِ And to support any cause that serves God. وَابْنِ السَّبِيلِ And wayfarers or in our modern age refugees and displaced people. Okay, this ayah became an anchor in Islamic law for what zakah is supposed to be spent on. So when you ask people what are the proper venues for spending the zakah, zakat al-mal, and they'll cite this ayah in Surah At-Tawbah, to tell you, well, you know, Allah says that it is for the poor and needy and it is for those who work to collect the zakah and, and distribute the zakah and the, and the, the people that, whose hearts are reconciled or people that you're paying to for a political reason and to free slaves and to free people from debt and in God's cause, وَفِي سَبِيلِ and for refugees and displaced people. There is a long story as to why Muslim jurists took this ayah and applied it to the expenditures of zakah. But what this ayah was intended to address is not just the zakah, but it is a general principle as to who is entitled to the expenditures of the state. Because Muslim scholars back then knew that they couldn't tell the state who should take priority in terms of their expenditures, they limited the ayah to zakah and sadaqah. But if you look at the context, the context is that it comes to a people who are well-off 
And we know that these people are supposed to be giving rather than receiving. But they're very, you know, they, they don't like giving. And they, are, they want to be part of the community, but they indeed, they're, you know, as, we, as the Quran describes, that they're constantly, they're, it's a matter of prestige. They're going to the Prophet and swearing that they're part of the community, although you know, people look at their behavior and see their behavior as suspicious. But ultimately, their relationship with this community is based on financial interest. Allah comes and tells them, Allah knows that you expect to financially benefit from the state, the state created by the Prophet ﷺ. But the, Allah doesn't want money from you because of this attitude. Why? Because you must understand that the money that the state makes is not for you. The money that the state makes is earmarked for causes. What are these causes? The easiest one for us to understand is to support a jihad in Allah's cause. Okay, we all understand that, right? The other expenditure is purely political to make sure to, to pay people that you need to pay so that they will not be enemies. They will be, their hearts will be reconciled. This, this has nothing to do with zakat money. This has to do with expenditures of the state. And beyond this, then the money has to go to the poor and to the needy. And to those who perform a public service, serving the public good, employees of the state that serve a public good. Those are the al-amilin alayha. And then the wayfarer, the person who is displaced, who is away from home, as in need of funds, and to free slaves and to free people of debt. The seed that is being planted here is not just for the zakah, but I submit to you that Allah was telling us, you want to know how to build a justice society. Then when you organize your affairs of fiscal responsibility, make sure that the money of the state the state's money is going to free slaves to get people out of debt, to take care of the poor and needy, to take care of displaced people, homeless people, the homeless and displaced refugees, to whatever is in God's cause, which means institutions of education, hospital, uh, spending on uh, arming the, the, the military. Imagine if Muslims who've understood the seed for what it is. In my view, 
clearly in Surah At-Tawbah, Allah tells us that for the state to free slaves and the state to free people of debt and for the state to take care of the poor and needy and for the state to take care of the homeless and displaced is the priorities of state funds. It is not to make the rich richer, which many states, in fact, their fiscal policies are about making the rich richer. But that's, I understand why the development of Islamic law, jurists bent backwards and forwards to say, well, this is really about zakah. Because they, 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 but, but you will find when in reading that this ayah is often cited by Muslim scholars when they're criticizing or when they're describing a, a, a particular dynasty or a when they're explaining, for in, instance, why Al Khilafah Rashida has ended. And why Omar, Abdul, Omar bin Abdul Aziz was among al Khulafa al-Rashidun, that, that he was the fifth rightly guided caliph. And the other Khulafa were not, Amawi or Abbasi or whatever. And they'll often then cite this verse and say, well, because Omar Abdul Aziz, you know, listened to Surah At-Tawbah and he, the way he expended the state, state's budget was in accordance with Surah At-Tawbah. So they realized what I'm talking about, but they didn't articulate it juristically because the circumstances of the, their age didn't allow them to, but they would always express it in a hopeful way, in an aspirational way. Oh, you know, the, look, you know, the truly, tritely guided Kalos understood what this ver verse was truly about, and so they always took care of the poor and, you know, the needy and the people in debt and so on, but who in our day does that? So at least that's what the cash should be paid for, to, should be expended on. This is a critical point because it's, again, if you're talking about moral seeds, it is one of the greatest lost moral seeds of the Quran. Allah doesn't give us a choice when it comes taking care of the displaced and homeless. Allah says it is, it, you can't pretend that, oh, you know, your obligation is to build sewers and streets or bridges and say, okay, well, that's what the state does. No, you, 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 the state, in the same way that the state has to spend on jihad, but it also, has to spend on taking care of the poor and the needy and the people in debt. And, it, you know, slavery in our day and age is indentured service. There are people so poor that their labor is slavery. And if you are looking to the morality of the Quran rather than the technical law, but the ethical ethics of the Quran, you would say anyone whose neck, figuratively, is as if enslaved by debt 
it is a moral obligation upon the slave, the state to come and to free that person from the shackles of this relationship. You would get a very different set. Can you imagine, can you just imagine for a second if all the oil wealth that Allah gave to the Muslim world, uh, you know, it is, it is mind-blowing that once the Khilafah crumbled, we discover that most of the world's oil reserves happen to be, just happen to be, in Muslim countries. Iran and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Kuwait and, you know, it's wherever you turn, it, it, you find them. Now, any thinking human being would have put one and one together and said, Allah is giving us the means to restore ourselves. Allah is saying, yeah, I know you crumbled. That's a tough break, but I'm giving you another chance. Now imagine if these oil resources were spent according to what Surah At-Tawbah says. Imagine the dignity of a Muslim in our modern world. Imagine the message that people would associate with Islam in our modern world. Oh, this is the religion that frees people from captivity and indignity of debt and need. This is the religion that takes care about, understands that wealth belongs to God. And when you say wealth is expended in God's cause, it, God's cause is the dignity of human beings and their well-being. Okay. What time is it? Okay, then after this, this, you know, a, a lot basically, so tells them, no, state's money is not to benefit you people. Uh, and state's money is, has other priorities. Allah talks, again, exposes another those who do it will know that they do it. You know, th this is the style of surah, this is the, the way that surah the Tawah, those who do it will know who the Quran is talking about. But always, the historical example is to teach us a lesson. So, قل أذن خير قل أذن خير لكم يؤمن بالله ويؤمن ويؤمن بالله ويؤمن للمؤمنين ورحمة للذين آمنوا منكم والذين يؤذون رسول الله لهم عذاب أليم يحلفون بالله لكم ليرضوكم والله ورسوله أحق أن يرضوه إن كانوا مؤمنين ألم يعلموا أنه من يحادث الله ورسوله فأن له نار جهنم فأن له نار جهنم خالدا فيها ذلك الخزي العظيم يحذر المنافقون 
أن تنزل عليهم سورة تنبئهم بما في قلوبهم قل استهزئوا إن الله مخرج ما تحذرون ولئن سألتهم يقولون ولئن سألتهم ليقولنا إنما كنا نخوض ونلعب قل أبي الله وآياته ورسوله كنتم تستهزئون So this takes us to 65 Okay So now what earmarks or, or characteristics of hypocrisy does Surah Tawbah turn to? These are not necessarily people of wealth. In other words, their, their, their ailments are of a different type. So, um, yeah. First, the, the historical context, so we can. There are, there were figures in um, there were a number of figures that Islamic uh, uh, history tells us about. Among them is a fellow called Nabtal ibn al-Harth, um, who Nabtal was among those people who was always in the circles of the Prophet So he is constantly in the close proximity of the Prophet But as he, he he's a double talker, he praises the Prophet and pretends to be a great admirer of the Prophet when he is with the in certain circles. But then he goes to different circles, the circles of dissenters in Medina, what the Quran calls the hypocrites. Circles that he knew were constantly criticizing the Prophet. And this again, to the whole issue of the role of dissent that we have uh, whitewashed and th th there, were, there was serious opposition and dissent at the time of the Prophet to the Prophet that the Prophet tolerated. So he would then go to these circles and relay the stories or relay the events and things he heard or experienced but now, when he relays these things, he relays them in a critical fashion. In other words, he's two-faced. When he is around the prophet, he, he sounds like you know he's, he's an admirer. But when he goes in the hypocrite circles or the, the circles of the dissenters, 
He's saying, can you believe he said? Can you believe they did? Can you believe th- this and that? And among the things that Nabtal and others would say about the Prophet is that, oh, he's so naive, he believes anything that is said to him. That's what Udun means. Udun literally means an ear. He's an ear. Meaning, he listens, to, hears everything, and he believes everything. Now, this was remarkably one of, and again, imagine how it would help us understand the character of the Prophet if we uh, got, took our Islamic history seriously. In the same way that hypocrites would, would go to him and say, you know, can we be excused? We, you know, we, we have this excuse or that excuse. And they would take his silence or his nodding as full consent. You don't do that with someone that you're scared of. You do that with someone that you think is so kind, he's going to approve of anything. And that was part of what they would then go around because these were gruff desert people. And gruff desert people normally respected a leader who was cruel and harsh and brutal. Not someone who was tender and gentle and smiles and jokes and remembers their name and plays with children and jokes with children and has a bleeding heart and believes everything that he's told. So among the criticisms, say, can you believe this guy? He believes everything that what is it that he believes that he's being criticized for? They're mocking him for believing the excuses. Because to their mind, well, if you don't believe our excuses, you wouldn't have approved. You wouldn't have said, oh, it's okay. I understand. They don't understand that type of ethical character. They don't understand that type of morality. They don't understand that you could know fully well that a person is lying to you. And you, and you let them off the hook because it's the moral thing to do. They don't understand that you could understand that a person is, is suffering from hypocrisy in the heart, from a deep hypocrisy or a deep weakness, but you don't confront them because you know that they're not ready and you know that they're not, it's not going to benefit them. So... You say, okay, go, you know, go through your own experiences because you have to come to that conviction. So it doesn't mean that the Prophet believed their excuses. In fact, I am convinced that the Prophet knew fully well that their excuses were nonsense from many different indications, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to force you. It doesn't mean that I'm going to you know, shame you into doing what you are, you don't want to do. And so Allah comments 
Andres. And, and it's amazing because, again, imagine the discomfort of, and I actually wanted to know, there were certain people like Neptal who were always, you know, coming around and, and hanging around the prophet until the revelation of this ayah, and then he stops coming around because it, it, it became has become very awkward. So, Laura comments on this and says to them, so he believes everything, right? This uh, they they say they malign the prophet by saying he is all ear. Say yes, he is all ear, listening to what is good for you. He believes in God and trusts the and trusts the believers, and is a manifestation of God's grace towards such of you as have truly attained to faith. And as for those who malign God's apostle, grievous suffering awaits them in the life to come. So. Allah responds to this by saying, well, yes, Muhammad as it translates it, yes, he is all ear listening to what is good for you. It's not quite, in my opinion. He's saying, yes, the fact he is all ear and that is good for you. So, yes, he pretends to believe everything you tell him. But it's not because of weakness of character, as you think. But in fact, because part of what his function is, is to build trust in the believers. He is not there as one of your, you know, classic uh, traditional tribal rulers to embarrass and shame and cast and uh, you know castize and 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 persecute and punish. He is there building character, teaching you what it means to believe in God and in this message. And. Part of the graciousness of faith is to give you the impression that he believes you even when he knows that you are absolutely full of it. It's, it's, it, it's mind-boggling. It's extremely profound. The layers in Surah At-Tawbah are just... So... Then, and that is why, and, and that is precisely when Allah, and this, remember this for now because this will come back to the, at the end of Surah At-Tawbah. And that is why he is the rahmah lilladheena amanu. He is a mercy for those who believe. This is part of being a mercy. He's not there 
to be a typical classical political ruler in Arabia. Okay, so then and there. Oh, uh, uh, I, I, uh, lest I forget, or I was going to forget. There also, in the context of this this passage, um, um, there are interesting um, characters like Omair bin Saad. Omair bin Saad would it, it, he. He took it upon himself to um, pretend to befriend the hypocrites and or the dissenters. So he would go in their circles and listen to what they're saying about the prophet. And then he would go and tell uh, uh, the companions of the Prophet, he would especially, um, he would tell Ali bin Abi Talib and, and Abu Bakr, but Ali mostly, uh, about what these people were saying about the Prophet. And the, the, the dissenters started suspecting Omair and started telling each other don't don't say anything don't talk when he's around um and start avoiding him and i just thought it was really interesting that after when 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 this um when surah al-tawbah was revealed the prophet tells omair to to refrain from doing that to to stop um, seeking to find out what they're saying and then communicate it because he didn't communicate it to the Prophet himself. He would communicate it mostly to Ali bin Abi Talib. But he's told, the Prophet tells him, don't do that anymore. Which, again, in terms of social psychology is, is fascinating. Um, it's like you know, you don't want vigilantes. It's one thing if you're hiring people whose jobs are spying on an enemy. But the prophet didn't hire anyone to spy internally, which is amazing, right? You have dissenters, and then you have someone who volunteers to become an internal spy and you tell him no, thank you. Don't, but don't do that anymore. Um, then, when Allah describes the Prophet as irahma, as a mercy, then you start understanding the the you know the ethics is of a elevated moral society. Now the question that we human beings have to deal with what do we need to construct an elevated moral society? Because if this is the standard that Allah is setting for you, 
and saying, this is the type of society that you need. This is the type of society where, you know, it's the, the, the poor is taken care of, people in debt or in bondage are taken care of, the people who are homeless are taken care of, the, the rich don't, you, you don't even need, you know, if, if someone is going to think that they are entitled to privileges and special treatment, tell them to get lost. So then if, if this is the standard for justice, and Allah says that if you truly wanted this path, you would have done what is necessary to undertake the path. In the same way that, well, if you want to build the building, you have to acquire the raw material. You, you can't say, I wanted to build, but fail to get the, the raw material to build it. Justice is in the same way, is exactly the same thing. You can't say, well, oh, I want to construct a just society, but fail to acquire the raw material for building a just society. And the, the, at most basic level, to do so, you have to understand what justice is and the processes, procedural justice, how to create procedures, processes that would produce res just results or at least have the potential of producing just results. It's not just willy-nilly. This is if we would have understood the ethical seeds that Allah gave us. Um, okay. Now, notice Allah, of course, you know, then tells them that um, so go to the, the promise, you know, the threat of, of what the faith, that's not surprising. Uh, so, yeah, go to where we get to uh, 64 and 65. So, first let's take the, 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 uh, this is 64. Okay. Some of the hypocrites dread lest a new surah be revealed that exposes them, it exposes what is really in their hearts. Say, go on mocking. Tell them, go on mocking. Behold, God will bring to light the very thing that you are dreading. God, in other words, will expose you. Yet indeed, if thou were to question them, they would surely answer, we were only indulging in idle talk and were playing. We were just playing. We were just having fun and playing. Okay, 
say, were you then mocking God and God's message and God's apostle? Do not offer empty excuses. You have indeed, the expression of you had, Muhammad Asad said, you have indeed denied the truth after having professed your belief in it. You have committed kufr after believing. Okay. Were you then, oh, uh, yeah, though we may efface the sin of some of you, we, we shall chastise others, seeing that they were lost in sin. Okay. So, there are numerous reports about this because it's describing those who would say things but then when confronted about saying them they were say they would say we were just having fun now take a step back and think what does that mean to for people to say we were having fun In a nutshell, they were saying, oh, come on. We weren't, don't take us too seriously. We weren't really that serious. You know, we were just, you know, expressing things. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we were, you know, juggling balls. But we were not serious. And they would they even go and as Allah says that they are swearing they swear that they were not serious and but Allah tells them Allah knows the gravity of what you in fact were saying and the truth of the matter is is that it comes out of your lack of belief a lot of commentators ignore this Allah says you were believers once upon a time but you are no longer believers so this is talking about a group of people who, in fact, their faith weakened. We'll, we'll talk about specifically some of these individuals a bit later. But, and because under the stress of what was going on, their wake, their faith weakened where they allowed themselves to indulge in a type of talk that if you had real faith you would not indulge in now so what is the more specific historical context then well as the preparation for Tabuk is taking place. 
And as they are marching towards Tabuk, now these are people that didn't sit out, didn't make excuses. These were people who actually joined, who, you know, didn't resist and actually went out of Tabuk. But on the march to Tabuk, as we will see, Muslims, as, as we will see in, a, in, a, in inshallah, soon enough, um, where some of the soldiers didn't even have enough footwear. They were they didn't have enough camels or horses. So many of the soldiers would have to alternate on riding a horse. So five people would be assigned to a horse where you know they you know one person rides the rest walks and then they keep and part of what they encounter is an intense thirst they run out of water they can't find water the march to tabuk is not familiar territory you know desert people they they they, they have travelers that know the landmarks and know where area but when you travel in the desert in in territory that is not familiar to you the biggest danger is that you don't know where the water could be. And that's precisely what happens in Tabuk. So they run out of water. And there are, amongst those who are marching in Tabuk, and they start... talking about their doubts about this campaign. And they say that, oh, we knew that this was a bad idea. We knew from the beginning this was the wrong decision. It, you know, if, well, we, some of them, you know, we didn't speak up because we didn't want to, you know, embarrass our elders, but you know, if they would have asked us our opinion, we'd have told them this is a really bad idea. And some of them went as far as to say, under the, the, the distress of the situation, oh, we don't know even if Muhammad is really receiving revelation from God. You know, how do we know that this is just not stuff that he's making up? And, and so they actually start saying, until there is a very significant turning point. Now, of course, in mythology, it becomes exaggerated in a variety of ways, but there is rainfall. And when the, when the rain falls, it means that the, the harshest test is over because now you can drink. You go from dying of thirst and the minute they, of course, you know, in the in the tradition, they'll tell you stories that you know the the the, the prophet took a sand and then blew it, and then you know it's the the sort of medieval type way of t telling, but the, the the historical what seems to be is that you know the prophet is constantly doing du'a for Allah to to help them, for Allah to 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 save them by 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 
uh, finding water and there is rainfall and that lifts the spirit of the the soldiers and it prevents people you know from uh, and of course prevents also the the few the animals that are extremely valuable under the circumstances when they're marching to to meet the Byzantines and the Byzantines who have you know a whole force will armed force of knights and 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 you know all the 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 equipment of war that you could imagine it looks very grim so that means that what animals they have are going to uh, because they were even were even told in the tradition that some of them resorted to even drinking the blood of animals to survive now once the rain falls some of the most bitter critics now that they feel better say oh oh we weren't serious we, we we knew that god was going to help all along and the prophet of course the the companions are extremely disturbed about these people they get wind they you know in uh, they they they're told by their commanders that there are soldiers who are dissenting, who are saying, you know, some really disturbing stuff, and that they're thinking of turning around and abandoning the army because they're now not even sure that this is, you know, any of this is true. Under a sincerely hard test, they met their breaking point. But this is the whole thing. This is the difference between real belief and make-believe. Now that the rain fell and they go back and say, well, we weren't serious about any of this. And the moment passes. And when they go back to Medina, no one has confronted them about what they've said. Except Allah comes in Surah At-Tawbah and says, do you think Allah didn't notice? Do you think Allah didn't hear? Allah knows that what you said was kufr. And that when it came to the real test, you failed. You started thinking and saying things and the fact that you, when you felt better, you got in a better mood and you didn't become so dark and grim and you started saying the right things, oh, that's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that God has forgotten about it. And this is why Allah says, so first, don't make excuses. means, don't make excuses. What you said was kufr. So let's be clear about this. Now, now that I'm telling you, don't make excuses. And don't say, oh, we weren't serious. We were just joking. We were just, you know, all the different st stuff they said. Now, whether God forgives you or not, the prophet didn't get you into trouble or didn't, you know, hold you. It, it passed. But whether Allah forgives you or not, that's up to God. 
see now here for this group there are some of you who are truly bad apples these people Allah will punish some of you Allah understands you've 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 caved in a moment of weakness and Allah will not punish you but learn from this don't make excuses right is right and wrong is wrong and learn from the weakness that you experienced now Allah doesn't tell us and doesn't tell them who's who because that is a thing and and the prophet doesn't tell them because when people go and they they say halaktu ya rasulullah oh my god i'm 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 i am i am now in in absolutely done for all the prophet tells them is repent to god and ask for forgiveness in other words the prophet doesn't tell them are you among those who will be forgiven or those who will not be forgiven all the prophet tells them is just repent and ask for allah for forgiveness so it is up to you to think to look in introspectively and think am i among the truly the mujrimin the 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 the, the truly bad apples who don't deserve god's forgiveness because for instance i keep doing it it's a repeat i'm a repeat offender or was this a moment of weakness and i learned from that that don't make excuses live up to your mistakes okay um Now, there are, there is even, um, there is even, um, a narrative that 12 men conspired to try to assassinate the prophet i've looked into this report and i mean i, I i'm not saying it's not authentic it, it but there there are many different versions and who were the 12 men there is a, a, a and but i think there's a kernel of truth that there are a group of people who upon being truly tested which is uh, I mean being truly tested had started talking about wouldn't you know maybe we should get rid of muhammad now it is hard because none of these people were prosecuted or exiled or punished it's hard to imagine that it was an actual assassination attempt as some sources say um an attempted murder 
would have, I mean, it's hard to imagine that even if the Prophet wasn't inclined to do anything about an attempted murder, um, that the companions would have, and, but, and, and there are a lot of contradictions about this, uh, about, but what I think, what I think the kernel of truth in it is that whether they were 12 or 6, as some sources say, that some started contemplating solving the entire problem by, you know, maybe we should do something to get rid of the prophet. I don't think they actually took affirmative steps to plan anything. I think shortly after they started having these conversations, the, the rain fell. And, you know, when you are dying of thirst, you could become, if, if, if your, if your um, nature is not very nice, the worst comes out. And, you know, nothing like true hardship, like hunger or thirst. If you're truly a nice person, it shows. And if you're truly a mean person, it shows. And I think these were truly mean people. They were not nice people. And they started fantasizing, let's put it this way, about, oh, you know, we should get rid of this man. And once the rain fell, whoever knew heard them, because... It, it it got it, uh, I mean it. Some sources say Allah told the Prophet about it. Other sources say, no, there are people that heard and they went and told companions, and the companions told the Prophet. Anyway, that their response. Oh, we were just. This was not. You know, we were misheard. This was. This was not. We were just joking around. We were laughing. In other words they started making excuses that were nonsensical, that were farcical, that, that basically are saying, oh, don't take us seriously. We, we weren't really, at any point, really contemplating acting in any serious way that would harm the prophet, etc., etc." And I don't think these were the only people intended to be addressed because it was clear that there were different, I mean, if you look in various sources in the Tafatir, just the number of narratives about the number of people who were started saying things under these extremely difficult circumstances, they fall in different groups. There were the people who were, you know, doubting the wisdom, the, the, some people who were doubting the prophecy, people who were contemplating, saying, oh, maybe we should get rid of him, etc., etc. Et people who were saying maybe we should abandon the army and just make a run for it. There were even some who said maybe we, we should make a break for and join the Byzantines. And we will come to, to one guy, uh, to uh, not just one guy, to a whole group that that this sort of, maybe we should join the Byzantines and tell the Byzantines, you know what, we don't get mad at us. 
let's preempt a problem by the Byzantians by going to the Byzantians and saying, don't get mad at us, don't punish us for daring to defy you. We have been you know, subjugated for so long. Uh, we'll preempt the whole thing by joining the, going to the Byzantians and pledging our loyalty to them. And we will see the in inshallah next halakha the, the that group of people. So there were another faction that was you know the people were saying we maybe we should have, uh, maybe you know we, we should be with the Byzantines. And again, there, some of them when the Quran came and exposed them, they said, oh, we were just joking around, we weren't serious, you know, we never really took it seriously, etc., etc. But the 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 same point applies to all of that. Allah heard it. Allah knows the truth of what took place is that you folded, you broke under the pressure. And some of you are truly criminal in your intentions and in your character. Some of you, it's a for it, it's a forgivable um, fall. But a wise person doesn't go easy on themselves when they think about their responsibility under the circumstance. Because if you are, if you are, if your sin is of the unforgivable kind. And you assume that God, you, you fall in the category of those who God will forgive. You're in serious trouble. Okay, let's stop at. So, what time is it? Oh, nine thirty. Okay, so let's stop at sixty-seven. Yeah. Inshallah, then next halakha we. Um, this is, uh, you know, some reports say that among those that those who were addressed by the, the uh, th this revelation, sixty five, sixty six. Some reports say that there were 300 men and 170 women. I mean, reports that give you exact numbers like that are always uh, suspect. But what you learn from them is that we're talking about not just a few handful of people. We're talking about, you know, a, a phenomenon. Um, the other thing I should, before we end, I should tell you is that some of the the people addressed here, um, like um, uh, Jahsh bin Humayr, for instance, just one figure. Um, was so repentant. This is an example of someone who confronted himself and felt so a, 
horrible about his weakness and what he said and was so transformed by it that he kept praying to God in the whole process of repentance that he would die a martyr. And in fact, he, he did die a martyr in a later battle. Um, but so when you look at the Sira, you find all types of examples. You find people who truly repented and were transformed. But you also find people who never shaped up and remained suspicious, dark characters till the day they died. Some, as we will see, even after this, having been embarrassed, uh, instead of changing their, their course of conduct, even made it worse by engaging in, by basically developing a plot to uh, invite Byzantine intervention. Uh, in the affairs of Medina. We'll talk about this, inshallah, next halakha. Um, but they, they even compounded the error. Human being, Allah is inviting us. You know, th these are just human beings, just like us. And in the same way that if this happened today, you will find, you know, all types. You will find those who become more stubborn, those who become more defiant, those who become more egregious in their conduct, you will also find those who will truly become repentant and be completely reformed. You will find all types of human beings. And it is part of the majesty of what the Prophet ﷺ, and this is how you learn the love of the Prophet when you truly understand this man's character, is that he allowed all types of human beings to be who they are. And he was not a tyrant, he was not a despot, he was not a brutal, um, you know, punisher. Um, anyway, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, let's stop here. Alhamdulillah, um, Rahim. Thank you so much as always for another incredible session. Um, there's just, there's so much gold in every single session and I mean we only made it to I guess verse 67 and so we're a little over halfway um, but it's just so powerful especially the whole idea of the moral seeds um, because when you point them out and um, you even um, I mean it, it really makes me think about our current age and our current situation and um, in particular like the discussion on when Allah plants the seed for wanting a just society, right, and, and the whole discussion on verse 60, um, how people think of this as just talking about zakat and sadaqah, but when you talk about, like, how should state funds be spent, what are the priorities of, you know, and, and how does that play out in a just society, um, I can so easily think of the vibrant examples in our day and age right now. Right here in America, we are really suffering and we're you know three weeks out from our midterm elections and when i start thinking about you know some of the things i'm hearing in the news for example you know people are worried that the republican party is going to um you know come back into power because the democrats have not been doing great um and 
you know, the Republicans have made it very clear that they want to take away entitlement funding. So they want to take away Social Security. They want to take away Medicare. We know, obviously, they're not interested in health care for all. But, you know, if you just check off the list of all the things that, as Muslims, we should care about, and the alignment with what theoretically should be like the Democratic Party, you know, when you say, okay, freeing slaves, um, you know, the state of people in, in labor um, or, you know, the, uh, credit card debt, you know, the poor and needy students who are in debt, um, people who, you know, are don't have health care. Um, two things that I heard recently that are crazy are um, that when someone did a study of what the costs, what, what the key drivers of inflation are right now, because obviously our economy is going nuts, 50% of what causes inflation is simply corporate profiteering. Um, and that, you know, Bernie Sanders is the one that's actually out there saying all of these things or, you know, supporting a lot of these things when a lot of our actual, you know, um, people in, in positions of power are not interested in talking about any of these things. Um, three people, um, have more wealth than the bottom half of the population. And, it, you know, so these are all um, examples that, you know, our Quran points to as things that we as Muslims should care about and fight for. And so when I think about here, you know, how do we make a change, even if Muslims got active in politics and made it clear, look, from an Islamic perspective, the, this is our, you know, this is what God calls for, or this is what you know our um, objectives are: is to help the poor and needy, free slaves, you know, help people that have their their necks in debt, um, you know, all those things we talked about. It's it just really hammers home just the incredible power of this message and how it is even more meaningful in in our day and age. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, pointing out all of the different things that indicate for us, you know, signs of hypocrisy and even the point that you made, it's really important to understand the nuance and not just use hypocrisy as a word to kind of excuse, you know, ourselves or distance those. It's like there's not an extreme between, oh, complete unbelievers or not, but that there are actual degrees, I guess, of hypocrisy and that these are the things that we can use to evaluate where we are. Um, you know, there, there's just so much that you covered in just this one session again that are really powerful for all of us um, as individuals and as a society. So, um, and again, just underscores how, how important and relevant the Quran is for, for our time. So thank you so much for that. Um, I just wanted to say that we actually are not going to have a halakha next week um, because we actually have some family coming to visit um, uh, and other visitors as well. So, um, and then I think the following weekend we have a couple of things um, on Friday and Saturday. So I think we are going to have to move the halakha to Sunday, November 6th. So that will be our next meeting time. So just to put that out there. And um, so I hope you guys will miss you and hope you have a wonderful next couple of weeks. And mm. we plan to see you Sunday, November 6th, inshallah. So thank you for being with us. And uh, take care. Assalamu alaikum. Bye bye.